0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: And so what's happening is these hackers who are sophisticated are spending too much time in hitting some of those more sophisticated companies who have like the right systems in place, and so they're going downstream. And that's why you see an increase in the number of attacks in sort of the middle market.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some interesting stories to share this week. And later in the show, Carol Terrio returns. She's talking to Michael Maiden, head of Security Awareness at Mimecast, and formerly with the U.S. Department of Treasury, he's going to explain why he believes the skills gap is a direct and growing result of the unnecessary complexity that the security industry has introduced. And we are back. Joe, I'm going to kick things off this week. This story was sent in by a listener named Martin, who uh, I suspect listens to a lot of different podcasts that I'm on. Okay. Because he's doing a little bit of trolling here in Um. in a very friendly way. Friendly way. He says, gentlemen, longtime listener here and I have to say, I think listening to you has made me more paranoid than I should be. Then we're doing our job. (laughs) That's right. He says, as an example, I was recently driving through Maryland looking for furry costumes. (laughs) During my trip, I had the occasion to stop into a national pharmacy chain. Mind you, this was not in the normal sketchy Maryland neighborhood. He's trolling us, Joe. He's trolling us. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So after I collected the items I needed, I approached the counter to check out. The store phone rang, and the clerk picked it up. The following is the paraphrased conversation. Well, you'd have to come into the store for me to check. Okay, I can do that. Nope, that didn't work. Nope, that didn't work. Nope. Didn't work. After about six iterations of this, the clerk hangs up. Being a nosy, grumpy old guy, I asked the clerk what that was all about, and he tells me it was someone wanting to know how many rewards points they had on their account. He continued to tell me he gets those all the time. Being inquisitive, I asked how many he might get a day. Can't be that often. He told me that on that day he had already had five calls about rewards points. I said, what do they want to know? He said, the young man, a teenager, said he wanted to know how many rewards points they have on their account. Hmm. I pointed out that it seems weird that they give you multiple phone numbers to check. And he mentioned that that was common. Huh. Now, I don't know what's going on, but my grumpy old suspicious mind got to thinking about what might be going on. First off, people are calling stores with phone numbers trying to figure out how many rewards points are available on their accounts. Once they find an account with points, they send someone to the store to purchase an item with the available points. I noticed after I checked out that I had an equivalent of about $50. Huh. Now I know low payoff, but if a person can score this five to ten times a week, that could be 250 to 500 bucks a week or more if they resell the items on the secondary retail market. Right. More importantly, you can use these points to purchase over the counter controlled items, which are consumer drugs that could be used to do things like make meth. Right Now, I may be letting my imagination run away with me. Either way, when I retire, this is the scam I'm going to use to supplement my retirement (laughs) income once I'm in the home. so uh, (laughs) That's a good scam to supplement your income. (laughs) There you go. Well, thanks, Martin, for sending that in. Joe, what do you make of this? I I don't doubt
3: Martin's suspicions. I think that's exactly what this is. Why Mm -hmm. would you call and give someone four or five phone numbers? I only have one phone number that I give for all my affinity programs, which is what these reward point things are. Mm-hmm. Somebody calling for five is a red flag to me. I think Martin's spot on in his intuition here.
2: Yeah. It's interesting that uh, I guess the risk here is that using something as relatively easy to guess as a phone number, mm-hmm. right? In other words- if Or research. Well, but but there's this, if there's a store nearby, right. I know- What the likely area codes are for that store. Correct. Right. So we can nail that down. I can even get the list of prefixes. Yes. The first three numbers of the phone number. Right. So now. It's not so much of a guessing game, right?
3: <laughs> no, find it's, it's. I have 10,000 candidates if, for a given prefix, and I just go through the candidates until I get one.
2: Right. That's interesting.
3: It's an inelegant brute force attack, but brute force is one of my favorite kind of forces.
2: <laughs> it reminds me that, uh, you know how when you go uh, here in the States, if you go to a grocery store, right. and they ask you for your phone number to get the discounts on mm-hmm. things, right. if you don't want to use your phone number or you're not signed up at that store, right. it is almost always successful to use your area Code and then eight six seven five three zero nine.
3: That's right. I do that, that is, frequently. That
2: is almost in every single system. Yes. I use it as well. So, all right. Well, that's my story. Joe, what do you have to share with us?
3: Well, Dave, this week, nobody dies in my story.
2: <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. Right.
3: And my story comes from Justin Roilich over at Courts. Okay. In 2016, there was a group of scammers operating out of this very area who scammed three companies out of $10.6 million of stuff. By posing as a Navy contractor named Daniel the hmm. D-U-R-N-Z. Okay. And they used the email Derns at Navy-Mill.us. Okay. Which is not a military email.
2: A real U.S. military would end in... Dot mill. Dot mil. .mil. Right. Okay.
3: And this was hosted on Yahoo. So Yahoo is hosting it, and they're running the scam that way. Okay, they would send out fake purchase orders for equipment from this address in the hopes of receiving equipment. Okay, and of course they would never pay for the equipment. That was the scam.
2: They're pretending to be a purchasing officer from the U.S. Navy, right? Which is an organization that uh, buys a lot of stuff. Buys a lot of stuff, right. and and uh, I suspect uh, has uh, you know good good credit and all that kind of stuff. Sure,
3: <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> right. Uh, here's what they made off with. Hmm. They got. $1.1 million in Apple iPhones and iPads from a wireless voice data company in Washington state. They got $6.3 million worth of LG televisions from an AV distributor out of Virginia. And finally, they got $3.2 million in highly sensitive computer interception equipment from a defense contractor right here in Maryland. Well, that's interesting. That is interesting, isn't it? Hmm. It's not your ordinary scam. There's something going on that is more to this story that's interesting.
2: So when we say highly sensitive communication intercept equipment, what are we talking about here?
3: We're talking about some equipment that does something to intercept communications. We don't know what it is. It's probably highly classified.
2: So this is military- This is military-grade equipment. This isn't an off-the-shelf kind of thing. It is not. This is a custom piece of equipment. This
3: equipment was on the United States munitions list, which makes it subject to arms control regulation. Okay. So this is not- Small potatoes equipment, right? This is not some you know something you you can buy off the shelf at all. It, it is regulated by ITAR, which is the International Trafficking and Arms Regulation. Which, hmm. uh, if you've ever worked for a defense contractor, you have to go through that training once a year on hmm. what ITAR is and how you have to comply with it. Mm-hmm. This equipment is so controlled that a photograph of it was covered under ITAR. Wow. You're not even allowed to export a picture of this equipment without some kind of authorization.
2: So unlike the iPhones and the televisions, this is not a situation where someone's got a bunch of stuff and they're going to be... Selling it on eBay or or on the street corner or anything like that.
3: There is no way you're ever going to sell this out in public. Mm -hmm. This is not something you're going to do that with. This is not a a money-making operation. The defense contractor is only identified as Company B, and this group of scammers reached out to Company B using this drunts email and provided documents they represented as a Navy contract to sell between Company B and the Navy to sell this equipment to drunks. Hmm.
2: And so that's fascinating because if this is classified equipment, right. the bad guys would have had to have known what to ask for. Right. Presumably. This equipment is not known to the general public, mm-hmm. right? I mean, everybody knows about flat screen TVs,
3: iPhones, and iPads, right? right? Right, But how did these guys get the information to ask the correct contractor for the correct piece of equipment? That that information is all controlled. You have to have some kind of information about that in- equipment to even make the purchase order look believable. Hmm. So there's some kind of espionage going on here as well.
2: Yeah. Do they know where the equipment
3: was sent? Well, the equipment was sent to Chantilly, Virginia, to some office space in Chantilly that actually was not a Navy space. It was leased by somebody. And then it was shipped to California. And the article doesn't talk about where it went after that. Hmm. Uh, I don't know where it went after that. I'd like to know. That's one of the things I'd like to know. The office space in Chantilly was leased by Janet Sturmer, And she and seven others have been indicted on 15 counts of money laundering and identity theft. Interesting, the indictment it does not list any espionage charges, though. Hmm. Not yet, anyway. Interesting. So more to come, I suppose. I would hope there's more to come on this. There's a lot of things I'd like to know that we may never know, actually.
2: Yeah, yeah. You
3: know, who, who is behind this? Where did the equipment go? Did we manage to, to recover the equipment? Probably not. That would be my guess. I think this equipment is probably gone, sadly.
2: Yeah, and there are some a, a lot of folks who had uh, bad days when yes. they realized what
3: was going on. Yeah, the article talks about when people at Company B were informed about the fact that this drunt's person was not real. They didn't know that before the investigation was underway. I imagine that came as quite a surprise to those folks.
2: Yeah. Time to implement some, I guess, more stringent due diligence with these sorts of things.
3: Yeah. I don't know about the contract that that he sent over. The contract may have mimicked a valid contract. That may have looked real. There's nothing in here that tells us any of that. And there's no way for us to know it because it's probably going to be classified. So I'm just speculating here that the contract may have been a valid contract. It may not have been. It It may have been a fraud from the beginning. There might be some opportunity here for some business process review at Company B. As well as some phishing training because the email address did not come from a military email address. But whoever this was, they knew the lingo. They knew the lingo, right They said things properly. The article talks about how they wrote things right and we're seeing this a lot more in these kind of scams where these scammers are not wording emails like you know some Nigerian prince anymore. they're wording emails like the person you think is sending you the email. They're a lot more well done than they used to be.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, lots going on in that one. It's time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes to us from a friend of the show named Dave. He sent us some stuff before. He received an email. I'm going to leave out his last name here, but the email says, Dear Dave, I am Mr. Jim Bakuno from Zenith Bank, PLC. I called your phone yesterday as I was mandated to call you, but I could not get you on the phone as the phone number failed to connect. So I was mandated to send a pre-formal message to you as to confirm if your email address is still valid as the payment of your inheritance fund has programmed to be released. If you are able to read this message, please reply so we can email you full information and genuine reasons for contacting you. Regards, Jim Bakuno, International Operation Manager.
3: Hmm.
2: Now, Dave, who is a security professional, right, <laughs> responded and said, Good day, Jim Bakuno. Thanks for contacting me. I was not aware that I was due to receive an inheritance. How much am I due to be paid? I have gotten myself into a bit of a mess financially. I need to sort it out by the end of this money. This money could really help. To avoid calls from debt collectors, I've had to change my phone number. I think you have my old number. Please call me on my new number, which he lists, and he says, I will be available for the next 30 minutes. I ask that you don't share my phone number with others. It will cause me a lot of trouble if the debt collectors get my new number. Mm -hmm. Yours sincerely, Dave. So Dave, uh is trying to hook these folks and, and help waste their time, right? which is good. The other funny little thing about this is uh, Dave shared this on Twitter, which is where I saw it, and he got a response. He tagged the bank, which is Zenith Bank, right. and uh, he tagged the bank, and <laughs> the bank replied and said, Kindly be informed that the email received did not originate from Zenith Bank. Do note that the bank will not be liable in the case of any financial loss or otherwise. You are advised to ignore and delete such emails whenever you get them as they are most likely scam mails. <laughs> now, I, don't, I mean, this I want to say this message provided by the Zenith Bank legal team, right? right exactly. <laughs> this is, this is, this is uh, as much of a legalese uh, message from a bank, I think, as you'll see there.
3: So, Dave, I did a little research. Do you know where that number goes? Which number? The number that our listener, Dave, provided to Jim.
2: Uh, I do not. I Uh, do not. You should call the number. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It's a Rick Roll. (laughs) Yes, very good. (laughs) Well played, Dave. Well played. I have to say, I did not see that coming. So we'll put a link in the show notes
3: to this article that has the Rickroll numbers in it from, <laughs> from New Zealand. There's an Australian number, a U.S. number, a U.K. number, and a New Zealand number. Mm. And so you can just give this number out, and <laughs> the people that you give it to will be Rickrolled.
2: Mm, okay. Awesome. I just want to say also that since Dave is a friend of the show, that is why I have spared him and everyone else my amazing Australian accent. So, <laughs> All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, Carol Terrio returns with her interview with Michael Maiden. He's the head of security awareness at Mimecast. He's going to be talking about the skills gap in cybersecurity. And we are back. Joe Carol Terrio had the opportunity to speak with Michael Maiden. He's the head of security awareness at Mimecast and talking about a little bit of the tension that exists and creates this skills gap in
0: cybersecurity professionals. Here's Carol Terrio. Okay, so there seems to be this disconnect in the cybersecurity world. On the one side, you've got all these companies that now have to process loads of personal and private data By following much stricter guidelines, it's complicated. They want experts to help them do that. So they're looking to hire people. On the flip side, you have loads of graduates and people wanting to break into the industry that are finding it almost impossible to find the welcome mat. So I speak to Michael Maiden of Mimecast to try and understand this problem from his point of view and see what his recommendations are to help the next generation of cyber experts. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You are Head of Security Awareness at Mimecast.
1: Yes, a Head of Security Awareness and also Threat Intelligence. And Threat Intelligence, isn't that a great title? It is a great title. You know, the longer the title, the less important the job. <laughs> That's the trope anyway, it's pretty true. It
0: seems that we have a growing problem in cybersecurity and that is cybersecurity skill shortage. Break it down for me.
1: At a very macro level, the way that I see it is you have this industry that is very much on fire, right? It is growing in every way. It's growing in terms of vendors and tools. It's growing in ter- because to respond to the growing number of attacks, the budgets that companies are allocating to cybersecurity is growing. So you have the attacks are growing the budgets to address those attacks are growing and the industry is really booming. And what that creates is kind of fault lines and stresses within the any existing system, any system would stress under this condition and cybersecurity really is no different. People talk about complexity and the reason for the skills gap is because of complexity. Let me just address that and then I can go to why a graduate is frustrated about finding the cybersecurity on-ramp And why you have CISOs who are saying, hey, I need people. Where are good people that I can hire? There are three reasons why this cybersecurity enterprise is complex, I think. One of them is the types and quantity of attacks are constantly changing and iterating, right? The enemy is super smart and they're criminals too, right? So you have state actors and you have like really either state-sponsored criminals or just really sophisticated criminals who wears suits to work every day and they, they have families and they have, they go to nice restaurants and they're sophisticated people and they're criminals. It's really a, many times these criminal networks are, are a concerted effort. And so as the attacks are getting increasingly sophisticated, sort of what's happening is companies that have a lot of money and resources are doing a pretty good job in protecting, for the most part, like protecting their personal information the information of their customers, and also their crown jewels, right, for their company. And so what's happening is these hackers who are sophisticated, they're spending too much time in hitting some of those more sophisticated companies who have like the right systems in place. And so they're going downstream. And that's why you see an increase in the number of attacks in sort of the middle market.
0: So they're feeling the heat is they're what you're They're feeling
1: the heat and they're getting... Right. And and so, these companies that typically would have had sort of mediocre hackers and mediocre criminals are now having really sophisticated hackers and criminals that are now attacking them because those hackers and criminals are going to where it's easiest to attack. And so, you have the types and quantity of attacks are on the rise. The next is you have all these tools and products, right? If you go to any cybersecurity conference, take RSA, for example, or Black Hat, you have this sea of products. And it's really, really hard, admittedly hard to sort through which tools and products do I really need, especially when you have this advent of all these startups who are coming in, right? like mine was, and saying, we do this one thing better than anybody else in the market. Well, when you have 15 companies all saying that, all successful, and it's just one like small component, CISOs are understandably lost in the sauce. And of course, there's then the skills gap, which is this perception that there aren't enough qualified cyber analysts, professionals to uh, security professionals to meet the growing demand. So you have the types and quantity of attacks are on the rise, you have an abundance, right, a diluge of products and tools that are out there, all basically claiming many times the same thing, and that leads to a skills gap for people who know how to use and operate all these tools. Um, And so that's the overall environment.
0: Yeah, so, okay, so you've set the scene really well here. So you've got these three points here, the complexity and the skills gap and the deluge of products. And this complexity is bringing us to the problem of why newbies can't get jobs. So here's a little bit of that
1: that disconnect. When we say cybersecurity gap, and skills gap. I think it's important to really refine like what jobs are we actually talking about? And there's a huge range of those jobs. Those jobs for cybersecurity range from at the very top end, you're looking for data scientists, right? To look at your algorithms and improve your machine learning algorithms to refine what you're doing. And that's Not necessarily within the CISO's organization, but certainly within like the product organization, like someone who's creating a product. An app developer, for example, or anything. Right. They're going to need someone or many who are looking at machine learning and are familiar with natural language processing. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you're looking at an entry-level analyst on the job training for entry-level SOC analyst. So you have this huge range of jobs and professions and careers that are very different from each other that require extremely different education and background and experience all within this one industry. So I do think it's important when we're thinking like collectively as a community, the skills gap, what do we mean? Do we mean a skills gap for data scientists or do we mean a skills gap for the entry-level SOC analyst, the mid-level SOC analyst, so that would then help us speak to the schools and speak to the educators and say, this is more of what we're looking for and this is where I'm going.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting point. So What you're saying then is, we are kind of mudding the waters of the entire industry by yeah. saying, we have a shortage. and what people think in their head is like hacker fighters, really. Sure. It's a great word. I like it. Hacker fighters. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. And you'd be thinking those are the smart guys that are constantly at their computer and developing and programming. And that's not all, right? There's a lot of people like you and me fight, you know, fight these guys in our own ways. Right. For example,
1: I think that there's a dearth of program managers in the cybersecurity space. I mean, you have to be somewhat technical, but you don't have to be really technical. To be an effective product manager, you don't need a triple E, but you do need to know enough about cybersecurity to run a product line. And so I think there's this very big range of what the types of jobs and experiences that people are looking for. And if you think of cybersecurity as an entire industry, well, now it begins to make sense. Like if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, you wouldn't say, oh, there's a pharmaceutical industry skills gap. There'd be a skills gap in someone who's doing like maybe biomedical research or there's a skills gap in something else. So, to paint it with a very, very thick brush, I think the problem with doing that is it doesn't allow us to solve the actual problems, right? And the problems are many.
0: Okay. Now, how can those individuals that are finding it really hard to break into this industry of cybersecurity, how can they make use of this information to benefit their careers? They're looking for the door and they can't find the front door. There's two sides to this.
1: There's the person hiring, right? And then there's the person looking for a job. So the person who is hiring, it has a operation center. And they're looking for an entry-level person to be an analyst. Now, typically, what this person will do in the job announcement is say a minimum of two years. Now, that person, the hiring officer is saying that. The person in the security shop is is informing HR, I want this person, I want a two-year minimum. And here's the crazy part about that. Often, they just say that. Like they're not actually thinking about, do you really need someone with 24 months of experience? Probably not. Because the number one requirement for any, in my view, biased, the number one requirement for an entry-level position as an analyst at a SOC, and I've been doing this for 25 years, right? The number one requirement is an insatiable curiosity. It's curiosity, right? It's someone who geeks out in discovering stuff. That's the job. Like right? it doesn't matter if you geek out in discovering stuff about who's attacking you, or you geek out in discovering stuff because you are a really awesome archaeology, you know, student, and then you realize, wow, this cyber stuff is so cool. Instead of uncovering dinosaurs, I'm uncovering this. It's the same thing. It's it's so interesting. Like it's someone who has a, a curiosity about life and has an enthusiasm and an excitement about discovery. That's who you want to hire as for an entry level position. The problem is the hiring authority, that person is, I think, willy-nilly saying two years. When you say two years, that cuts out. Every single entry level person.
0: But hey, let's face it, all they're trying to do is trying to make some kind of structure so that the HR person can bring in candidates that are viable, right? So, so maybe I get what you're saying. I think having these kind of hard uh, stops, like a minimum of two years, maybe losing some really good potential candidates to come in. Again, that's good advice for the company, but I am looking for how someone who wants to break into this market, what advice do we want to give them? How can they? Shape and prepare to actually be taken seriously,
1: this space, people get hired through networks, and I know this person and this person is a you know trustworthy person, and I've worked with them in the past. that has an incredible amount of weight and so yes, if you randomly throw your resume over the transom, can it get looked at? Sure, but the odds of following up that resume that you're throwing over the transom with a call or an email from someone that you know that can help you and advocate on your behalf is priceless. When you're a student, your internships are critical because it's your opportunity to begin to build that network. And your professors are critical uh, because these are ways for you to to break out of, of your own shell and begin to network and be in environments that will then help you with your career. And then it's about finding mentors right within your area of expertise that you're passionate about and having those mentors help you. You need a mentor who's in there with you, in the foxhole with you, in the grind with you saying, here's how I think you should approach this. I think this would be a great opportunity and I'm willing to pick up the phone and make a call or write a letter or an email. So,
0: um, so the InfoSec show, which is on in June in London, you know, I'd love to see more kids there that are either studying or wanting to study or just about to finish their studies, going around and getting to know people that are on the stand are are the marketing people, are the sales people, but they're the ones that have the information and can give you insight on the company and tell you the people to contact.
1: And, you know, that's a really good point. And and I think that we as an industry need to force ourselves to be better here. I mean, like, why don't we have speed dating at InfoSec? Right. How come we don't have speed dating at RSA? Even
0: inviting the students just to your stand and saying, look, if you're out there and you want to talk to someone, we have an educator here that'll give you all the answers to your questions. You can talk to an expert, you know, in the area that you want to go into. For me, thinking of when I tried to get into the industry, you know, in my 20s, that would have been gold, right?
1: Yeah. In fact, we're doing that. So we just invited sixth graders over to Mimecast. It was awesome. And then we invited junior high and then high school. So all three kind of grade levels. And it was incredible. There was a sixth grader who was—I mean, seemingly just as sophisticated at cybersecurity as some of the grown-ups in the room. I mean, I was blown away by the level of sophistication of, of these students.
0: Michael, thank you so much for talking with us today. Kids, take his advice. Get out there and get those networks going. This was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans.
2: Joe, this
3: stuff is right up your alley, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, this says a lot of things I've been saying for a while. Michael calls the skills gap a perception. That is fantastic. How so? Because he says there's this perceived skills gap. He doesn't call it a an actual skills gap. And I'm with him, and he immediately goes to the same thing I harp on, hiring managers and HR people when they say, I have an entry-level position, and I want someone with two years of experience. Right. <laughs> Two years of experience is not an entry-level
2: position. Yeah. Okay.
3: Entry level means entry
2: level. The other one I like related to that is when they say uh, we need someone with five years of experience in a technology that's only existed for three years. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's
3: a great one. <laughs> or entry level people are required to have a CISSP. I've actually seen jobs- Right.
2: That, or a master's that, degree. Right. Yeah.
3: That right. say that. That you, you a requirement for the job for an entry level position is to have a CISSP. That, mm-hmm. I, don't, I haven't seen one of those recently. If I did, I would probably call the company and go, what are you thinking?
2: <laughs> Sir, who is this? <laughs>
3: (laughs) Yeah, Michael's also 100% correct, right. uh, I'm getting full of myself. I have a podcast, don't you know who I am? Yes, that's right. (laughs) Michael's 100% about the number one requirement for these candidates is curiosity, not the 24 months of experience. And additionally, if you're looking for someone for 24 months of experience, they're not looking for your entry level position. 24 months of experience is a good amount of experience in this industry, Mm -hmm. and it can get you around quickly.
2: Think about how much happens in two years in cybersecurity. Exactly.
3: What has changed in the past two years? The landscape is completely different. Mm -hmm. You know, the only way you're going to hire people and get them trained is just to put them in the situation. It's going to have to be trial by fire for everybody that comes into this industry.
2: Yeah. Right? Bring them along. When we do hiring, we'll say we need two years of experience or an equivalent amount of real world experience. Right, right. So we try not to use that as a gatekeeper. In other words, if you have a compelling story to tell about your experience level that that isn't reflected in jobs or education. Well, let's talk about it. Right. I have people approach me from time to time saying that they're trying to get into this industry
3: and that they can't because of this barrier that Mm -hmm. they have. That it's a real, very real barrier. So I like his point on job seekers. What you need to do is network. You know, get to know people in this industry. Yeah. uh, And that can help you immensely. I, I think I did the math on on my jobs in the tech field and the vast majority of the jobs came from people I knew in the companies. Mm-hmm. So get to know people.
2: I also agree with what he said about getting an internship. For me, uh, I had an internship my last year of college, and it was the things I learned in that internship and the connections that I made in that internship, those were the things that got me my first job right out of college. Right. More so than you know, college was valuable, I learned a lot, but the actual skills that got people to say, yes, we will hire you, those came from my internship. Right. So yep. I think that's really good an advice. Internship
3: is kind of experience. It is practical experience, rather. Yeah. And the connections are not to be discounted. Right. right? Absolutely. So don't do what I did in high school and goof off in an internship. When you get to an internship, <laughs> work it like you're the boss, you know? Yeah.
2: yeah. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Our staff writer is Tim Nodar. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. And I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.